1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: This show continues to be a member of the Agora Podcast Network. During my hiatus, I believe I promised a bunch of people to do some plugs for their shows. They're all great, and here they are.
1: Hello, welcome, and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois-Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest polities, and its legacy can still be felt today. Its dukes inherited conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to Hanseatic merchants, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, a history of Valois Burgundy.
2: All right, and despite my uh, somewhat haphazard introduction to that plug, um, check out Josh's show. It's great and obviously kind of pertinent to, uh, to our interests, so check that out. Okay, now it is time to bestow honor and praise upon our donors and patrons. Once again, we have quite a few, and we're still not going to get through all of them. I'd say we're going through another th- half of what's left, and uh, maybe we'll get through the rest next time. Again, if you haven't heard your name yet, hopefully I'll get to it next time. <laughs> this should be all of the donors. Got a few patrons this time, and then we'll get through all the, the rest of the patrons next time. Okay, first up, for our donors who are worthy of honor and praise, we have Nelson, who shall be known from henceforward as Captain Nelson, merchant adventurer to the bagel shop and royal lox supplier. Up next, Kevin, whose worthy deeds have earned him the sobriquet, His Holiness Bishop Kevin, official court interrogationist. Next up, Gerard, who shall be known from this day to many future days as Duke Gerard, warder of the strategic goat cheese reserves. Up next, we've got Calvin, who shall be known as Lord Admiral Calvin, commander of the much feared Warpedalo fleet. Up next, we have Brett, who shall be known from henceforward as Sir Brett of the long-overdue nickname. Up next, we have Geoffrey, who shall be known from now on as Lord Marshal Geoffrey, the corded palm router of the Delmarvian hordes. Up next, Elspeth, who shall be known from henceforward as Elspeth, the bibliothecarius of the realm and archival fasting advocate. And finally, we have Bree, who shall be known as Archdeaconess Bree of the Holy Order of the Living Formosus, voting member of the Royal Presbytery. And now we move on to patrons. Given the number I've already done with the patrons, I'm just sticking to people who up to their pledges. And so we have two. We've got Alexander, whose continued devotion to the realm has earned him the sobriquet Duke Alexander, squeezer of the royal widows, orphans, and other wards, whose continued devotion to the realm has earned him the new title... Duke Alexander, Squeezer of the Royal Widows, Orphans, and Other Wards, and Official Court Juice Maker. And lastly, finally, we have Grand Poobah Brian, who shall be known from henceforward as Grand Poobah Brian, First Lord of the Treasury, Lord Chief Justice, Commander-in-Chief, Lord High Admiral, Archbishop, Lord Mayor, and Lord High Everything Else. Thank you so much to everyone who's donated, uh, whether I read your name or not, uh, but particularly those whose name I read, you've all been a huge help, and just yeah, just you've been a huge help, and we will talk more about that next time. I I, I really need to get back to the well. I need to start the monthly meeting for the higher Patreon tiers. The house is still taking a lot of work. Everything's kind of together, but not yet, and I'm still haggling with the uh, the contractor about final payments and stuff, and you know just generally unboxing everything in my life. In any case, enough of that. Let's get on to the episode. One last thing. Um, I just wanted to thank uh Derek from the History of Alexander podcast for this episode's read. I uh forgot to get that in as an attribution at the end before I had uh Andrew do the editing. So thanks again to Derek.
0: The social picture the witnesses presented of Silva Mayor and Reyatina was of a society with stable rules reinforced by recognized rituals. When San Siriaco took over the Ottaviani rites in 1200, the monastic iconimus, or economic manager, came in person to plow in public there, although also underpinned by violence. One of the most detailed witnesses, Bentivoglio, when asked about the other signoral rites that San Paolo claimed the Ottaviani had had in Silvia Mayor, labor services and recognitive gifts, said that he knew nothing about such rites, but, since the lords were viri potentes, they indeed sometimes violenter extorquebant goods from people, sicut potentiores consueverunt ad extorquere, as the more powerful were accustomed to extort from the weaker. They had tried to extort a cow from him, but he himself could fight them off, quia potenserat, since he himself was powerful. Bentivoglio was here seeking to argue that, if such dues were ever extracted by the lords, they were violent, that is, illegal, rather than being a demonstration of the Ataviani's and thus San Paolo's legal rights. All the same, as an image of ad hoc rural oppression, this is as clear as we get in our period, even if it needs to be stressed again that the Ottaviani, however oppressive in casual ways, did not actually take very much in signoral dues. Quote from Medieval Rome by Chris Wickham
1: Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning
2: Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 87. The popes lived in a society, man. Last time out, I discussed the development of the papacy as an institution rooted in the city of Rome, as well as the wider context of the development of the church hierarchies in the Roman Empire and afterwards. We saw how there was a somewhat organic development, first of regional hierarchies that culminated in bishops, and then in Mega regional hierarchies focused on archbishops in regionally important centers, and finally in the development of patriarchs in cities with paramount imperial importance. Rome, as the only patriarch in the Latin speaking western half of the empire, had a major leadership role. In the context of the wider church, Rome claimed descent from St. Peter and St. Paul, something that was maybe less impressive given that Antioch could claim the same thing, but that doesn't matter anymore. No one seems to have ever brought that up to the Pope's face. Regardless, Rome was seen as the first among equals. More importantly, the development of theological controversies in the Eastern Empire often left the popes as a key swing vote between the emperors and their domestic enemies, particularly as Eastern Roman rule in Italy declined. In terms of Western Europe, the popes were able to use Latin possessions to cushion the blows of the fall of the empire on Rome. This, combined with some unique characteristics of Rome itself, left Rome as the biggest city in Western Christian Europe, despite, admittedly, a major demographic decline from classical antiquity. This demographic predominance gave Rome a major cultural and economic position in Europe, which allowed the popes to act as champions for Christianity in an uncertain period. As conversion to Christianity progressed, the popes were able to then act as influential leaders within Christianity, though they had no direct power over other bishops, much less over kings. When Charlemagne conquered the Frankish Empire, the popes were key allies and were able to use this connection to further cement the importance of Rome in Latin Christianity. When Charlemagne's grandsons ripped apart his empire, each sought to court the popes as a source of legitimacy, something that further increased the reputation and legitimacy of the popes in the West, to the point where the pope was able to, in some circumstances, sit in judgment of kings. That was a longer introduction than usual, but I think it's important because in this episode and the next two, we are going to rewind and tell the same story again, but this time from the point of view of Rome, the city. How did Rome come out of the fall of the empire so well? What was the basis of its economic success? How was it governed? In two episodes' time, I will bring all this together and begin to return to the narrative in earnest by telling the story of Papal Rome as a political protagonist in Central Italian politics, from the Italian wars up to the rule of Otto I, and then beyond. Much of the success of Rome in the Middle Ages can be explained by the economy of the city. And while I am trying to get away from geographic determinism, in this case, much of the economic success of the city genuinely comes down to its unique geography. So let's start there. Back in the Pleistocene, when the volcanoes were young... No, I'm sorry, I won't do that. The territory owned by Rome and the popes is sort of an onion of different levels of control politically. At various times, the papacy claimed to control territories as far afield as Istria, on the modern border between Italy and Croatia, and Sicily, the big island on the exact opposite end of Italy from Istria. For what should be obvious practical reasons, these claims were more or less allowed to lapse after Pope Hadrian's deals with Charlemagne. Though papal claims to Corsica and Sardinia would survive in some forms and Let's just say this isn't the last we will hear about papal interest in Sicily, to be honest. But that's for the future. More important for this section is the Romagna, an area in the Po Valley containing five major cities and Ravenna. In effect, this was the old Exarchate of Ravenna, the last major area of the Eastern Roman control in northern Italy. I glossed over this last time, and we don't have a ton of time today, but very quickly. The divorce between Rome and the Eastern Roman Empire was not entirely amicable. Sure, they had drifted apart due to physical distance and a lack of interest from the emperor, even though the pope was wearing that nice dress. Anyway, the split was probably inevitable. But this familiar narrative glosses over a lot of more direct friction. Several popes were kidnapped by imperial officers and died in eastern prisons. The emperors insisted for years on the right to confirm papal elections, something that, when enforced, caused long and disruptive delays between popes. The Exarchate of Ravenna was the seat of Eastern Roman power in Italy, due to its direct sea access to Constantinople, and as such, much of the conflict of this era played out as disputes between Ravenna and Rome. Nonetheless, in the waning years of the Eastern Empire in Italy, and as the Lombards became a massive threat, and as Constantinople continued to do nothing except make attempts to dispose of popes in order to find clerics more amenable to whatever the latest heretical fad was this week, Things changed in this regard. The nobility of the Exarchate began making common cause with the popes in political and religious disputes against the emperors in Constantinople on a more and more regular basis. In effect, the Pope had more influence in the Exarchate than the emperor did. On several occasions, the militaries of this area, staffed entirely by local nobles, rose up against the representatives of the empire in order to protect the Pope. Once this happened, Eastern Roman control was not long for this world and soon collapsed for good. The popes, who in effect had just acted as the leaders of all the culturally Roman territories of Italy to shake off control from Constantinople, sought to retain this leadership and gain governmental control of Ravenna, whom they referred to as their lost sheep in correspondence with other powers. But just because the two areas had both become annoyed at neglect and heresy coming out of Constantinople, didn't mean Ravenna wanted to bend the knee to Rome arguably a much more cosmopolitan city, and one that had been on top of local politics for several centuries now, many leaders in Ravenna fought bitterly to retain their independence from Rome. Ultimately, this dispute was resolved when the territory was given to the papacy as part of the settlements between Pope Hadrian and Charlemagne. But the specifics of this settlement are actually rather unclear. Uh, They seem to have ended up in a treaty that people talk about, but we don't have the text of, Charlemagne seems to have respected the autonomy of the Romagna under papal rule and the popes seem to have been okay with this at the time. In other words, the Romagna sort of had to give a salute to the pope and say that he was in charge, but day-to-day actual governance was handled from Ravenna or thereabouts. Basically, there was a three-way power situation and whatever the dynamics between those three powers, they negotiated between themselves between Charlemagne, the pope, and The Archbishop of Ravenna, which was not the most stable of situations, to be sure, though it remained du jour essentially the situation for the rest of the Middle Ages, which will be a problem. But anyway. To get back to the economy, the sources of Rome's early economic success were not in these outlying territories, but in the areas directly under the control of the city and the papacy. This territory was a fairly large strip between the Tyrrhenian Sea and the Apennine Mountains. North of this territory is the wide land of Tuscany. Tuscany is kind of funnel-shaped, and Rome basically controlled the Tubi part at the bottom of the funnel. That's a technical word, by the way, Tubi part. Running through the middle of the Roman-controlled territory and at the bottom of the Tubi part is the Tiber River. And Rome famously is located along the banks of the Tiber, quite a few miles inland from the sea. Rome controlled the territory along the river, up into the mountains, which connected Rome across the mountains to San Marino and territories controlled by the Romagna, and this area provided the city with iron ore and pastoral products like cheese, meat, and leather. This was also one of the two main routes for getting to the city from northern Europe. The other major route into the city was to come up the Tiber from Rome's port cities of Ostia and Porta. One could also come across land via Tuscany, and this would be more popular later, but at this time, the roads were not great and Tuscany could be politically hostile, so this seems to have been a less popular option. South of the Tiber, Rome controlled territory into the increasingly hilly terrain of Campania and Maritima. The monastery of Monte Cassino and the Maritime Republic of Gaeta are just beyond these southern borders, so if you look at a map and see Monte Cassino or Gaeta, you can think of the Roman territory as ending just a few miles short of that. It didn't include those places, it was just a little north. A few things to point out before we move on. First, this was a large and fertile area, relative to Rome's Italian competitors. Other valleys in Italy were larger and more fertile -er, but often those valleys were politically subdivided by competing cities. For example, the Po Valley dwarfed the Valley of the Tiber, obviously, if you look at a map, but half of that area was in the Romagna, and the rest fell under the rule of Milan, Turin, various duchies, marcher territories, etc., 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 not to mention that Venice is going to come onto the scene sooner or later. By contrast, one of the most unique things about the Tiber Valley is that it contains almost no major cities as competitors to Rome, and the exceptions were rapidly reduced to dependence. This territory was not all governed in the same way. Chris Wickham identifies several further shells of territory that behaved sort of in common ways. The outer areas in this strip of land were frontier zones, often controlled by military governors. These areas would develop into aristocratic holdings over time, but it's not clear how they were governed early on, and so we will come back to these areas next episode. In from the frontiers and blending out into it is an area that Wickham calls the Land of Castles. Now, don't think of Disney-style castles here. As we discussed in our earlier episodes on Italy, Italian castrum were a sort of different kind of thing, though politically they formed similar functions to Northern European castles. Northern European castles were forts built to house one family and as many soldiers as they needed to hold a territory. Often there was a village outside the castle, but the village was not the point per se. The point was the soldiers. Those soldiers would then go out over the countryside and help enforce taxes on people in the area, wherever they lived in relation to the fort. In Italy, what happened, by contrast, is that they built walls around the village. This sometimes involved moving an existing village to a more defensible spot. Sometimes this involved forcing people from scattered houses or hamlets into the village. Once within the walls, the garrison had an easier time controlling and taxing the residents of what were functionally little agricultural cities. As with manors in northern Europe, this development involved a combination of incentives, like security, the availability of mills and community and bakeries, and then also compulsion through legal and semi-legal violence. Some villages built their own walls and ended up being dominated by nobles later. Initially, they were just communes. Other castrum were entirely artificial creations in which nobles literally burned families out and forced them into a castra at sword point. Both versions of this process are true. In any case, all this happened in the outer zone fairly early, but then stopped for a number of decades. Probably the encastlementum process was easier in the chaos of the border zones both in terms of active military threats encouraging peasants to move to a more secure location, as well as creating an atmosphere of lawlessness to allow lords to move the process along. In any case, the encastlementum process is a huge area of study, but we don't have a great documentation for it in Rome. The documentation we do have suggests that a few castrum were organized closer into the city, but ultimately failed, probably due to peasant resistance. The peasants were just not interested, and the nobles couldn't force the issue so close to the law courts of the popes. Between the castles and the outside of the walls of the city was an area that Wickham calls the Agro Romano. Effectively, this was the direct hinterland of the city. This was an area of intensive agriculture that was entirely dependent on the city, economically and politically and whatever. Many Italian cities had such a zone, but the Roman one is unique in a number of ways. First, it was huge twice the size of the next largest in Italy. The lack of castles was also somewhat unique, but this may just be a product of its size. More importantly is the lack of basically any other agricultural evidence at all. Some of this is due to 20th century spread of Roman suburbs, but this agricultural silence is backed up by lack of documentary evidence. In effect, there is no evidence of villages, no manners, nothing we associate with medieval farming. This definitely doesn't mean that the area was empty. We know produce was being collected from church records, and it's far too large for the farmers to have commuted every day from the city. It's just that those records don't say who supplied the food or how, and the archaeologists haven't found any permanent structures that survived the centuries, even in trace form. Given the agricultural productivity of the time, or lack thereof, we have to conclude that the area was actually full of people, But poor people who did not produce written records and living in a way that did not generate major physical evidence, it's possible that the peasants were uniformly spread over the countryside in individual homes, or clumped in very small hamlets, or even they had no permanent homes and made their way to the fields from the city on like a seasonal basis. We do know that there was a class of middle managers who lived in the city and whose job it was to go out into the agro romano and collect rents and fees from the farmers. These men and their mules had to be fed and watered by the farmers, they got a salary, and passed the rest of the rents on to those who legally controlled the property. Beyond that, all we can say is that we don't know for sure how people lived. That said, within this zone there are a few locations that stand out as special. Their specialness gives us evidence of them, but it also means that they're different from the rest of the zone. First are Ostia and Porta, Rome's ports. Located on opposite sides of the Tiber Delta, Ostia and Porta are, throughout history, a case of Rome trying to make fetch happen. Neither location are good natural ports, but Rome clearly needed a port, so first the emperors and then the popes would pump money and resources into infrastructure projects to try to make them usable. By the early Middle Ages, raids by Saracen pirates added security as a reason that the popes needed to keep up the ports, as they sought to have fortified coastal locations to discourage attacks up the river. It only sort of worked. Given the need for support from Rome to keep this whole thing running, the port's commercial importance to the city, and the vital need to garrison the place, Ostia and Porta were very much under the direct control of the popes, and our records indicate things like the collection of river tolls as an important topic of discussion. Slightly inland from these ports are a number of large brackish ponds, notably Stagnum Maior. Brackish ponds are worthless for agriculture and grazing, They breed malarial mosquitoes and are generally hostile to human life. But they are great if you want to alter the landscape to allow the sun to evaporate water and produce salt crystals. And this is something that had been happening in this area for as long as we have records. Salt, being a necessity of life, is one of the last commercial commodities to die in any economic situation, so it isn't like an exemplar of a great economy, but it is an essential commodity, so it is economically important. There were a few locations where the salt was collected, but Campo Solinaro is the most prominent in our records. As the name implies, it wasn't exactly a permanent settlement. It seems that people would sign on to work in the camp for temporary terms in return for payment. The salt was then turned over to those who controlled the salt pans, shipped into the city, and sold there. This was obviously profitable for those with a stake in the operations, but it was apparently not too bad for the workers either as we have records of people signing up for multiple stints in the pans, and some statements by them to that effect that it was pretty good. That said, it's doubtful that there were many people living in the camp full-time. It was not exactly wholesome. The records surrounding Campo Salonero are some of the best-look-at-common-people in the Agro-Romano as their contracts produced a clear written record. Unfortunately, their situation was anything other than normal, so it's difficult to tell how to interpret these records. It would be interesting if we had some scrap of evidence as to temporary settlement for farming that would sort of follow a similar pattern to the camp, but we just don't. We have a similar situation in Silva Candida. This was an honest-to-God village to the north of the city in Roman Tuscany. However, it was also not a normal village as we would think of it. The important thing about this village is that it was in the middle of the woods, which wouldn't be that big a deal in Northern Europe, but given that Italy was heavily deforested, this location was rather important. The village was effectively a permanent logging camp, full of families of specialists who provided and prepared all the fuel and lumber needed by the city. As providers of a valuable commodity, the contracts between these workers and the people who controlled the rights to the area and the trade into the city meant that we have surviving records in which individual commoners have written deals with wealthy aristocrats. But again, the jobs being undertaken meant that these were not your average peasants. No matter how snooty, a modern CEO is polite to their accountant, and the great families of Rome knew to treat their carpenters with appropriate levels of respect. Lastly, we have Albano. This was the Roman wine region, to the south of the city. The area shows evidence of thick settlement. The farmers who worked in this area grew food as well as wine, but it's clear that wine dominated the economic and political relations of the area. This wine was a vital commodity for Rome, for the usual economic reasons people want wine, but also for reasons of religious ceremony, which were pretty important in Rome. Given the economic importance of the Roman market for the local wine, those who controlled the land in Albano mostly lived in Rome and managed the trade from there. Let us do the same and move from the Agro-Romano to the city itself. The city, like I've said, was built along the Tiber River and was mostly located on the east bank. Though the Tiber mostly flows from northeast to southwest, in this area it basically flows directly south, and as a result I will discuss parts of the city in relation to the western or eastern banks of the river. The city was defined by the Leonine Walls, essentially an update of the old Aurelian Walls, with the inclusion of the modern Vatican. The addition of the walls to protect the Vatican was done by Pope Leo, thus the name. The Vatican itself was, at the time, Known as the Leonine City, and was built around two structures St. Peter's Cathedral and the Tomb of Hadrian. The Tomb of Hadrian had, since the fall of the Empire, been fortified and was now known as the Castle of St. Angelo. The castle served to connect St. Peter's to the river, and thus the rest of Rome. Between these two sites and the river, there was a triangle of flat land which contained a variety of major religious sites. Of course, these important religious sites were one of the main economic advantages of the city as we will discuss in more detail later. Suffice it to say here that two neighborhoods of the city, Terranine and Pont neighborhoods, were economically devoted to the care and feeding of the pilgrims who came to see these locations. Indeed, they developed their own port facilities for the reception of these tourists, who mostly arrived by boat at this time. That said, the Leonine City was not the main river port of Rome. Some ways to the south of the Leonine City, though interestingly also on the western bank and provided with its own little wall, was the Trastevere region? Here is where the main components of the city's economy can sort of be seen in terms of raw inputs and raw outlines. River traffic came down from the Apennines and up from Ostia and docked along this port of the river to have their cargo unloaded. As such, it contained a mix of warehouses, hovels for the longshoremen, and some travel accommodations. Just as important were the water mills, and if you will permit a digression, these contraptions sound just amazing. Essentially, they were barges, built-up river from the city and provided with water wheels. They would be towed downriver and could be moored anywhere along the banks of the river, but most were clustered around the Isola Tabarina, in the middle of the river. These mills used the water power of the river to grind wheat into flour, and were a huge source of income for those who owned them, which doesn't necessarily mean that they were well-maintained. We have a lot of court cases about damage to mills or caused by mills, or trying to turf out a mill owner who wasn't paying their rent. If things went south in one location, the mill owner could just up stakes and float somewhere else to moor the mill. And of course, if they decayed beyond the point of repair, the owner could just cut them loose, shove them downriver, and build a new one. Though of course, you weren't supposed to do that, as angry boatmen occasionally reminded the owners. Inland from the river on the east bank were a bunch of neighborhoods that I'm not going to go into real detail on. This is where the majority of the city was and the majority of the neighborhoods, but I don't want to go neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood. Interesting as that might be. Many were centered around old Roman monuments. They all had at least one church or monastery. They usually had more than one. These churches were provided for by the papacy who deeded them land, and we will talk about that more in a few minutes. Each neighborhood had a variety of skilled craftsmen practicing in them, though there does seem to be some specialization in certain areas of the city, the details are a little hard to pin down. What I need to make clear, however, is the settlement pattern of the city. Stories from the more grimdark commentators of this era make it sound like Rome was a wasteland, except for the areas around churches, and that wasn't the case. Agriculture was definitely happening inside the city walls, but the settlement densities were still very high. We should probably think of the agriculture going on as market gardening, producing vegetables, meat, and eggs for local consumption on relatively small, intensively used patches. While cattle were more of a product of the Apennines, one can easily raise pigs and chickens on a small plot, while vegetables and fruit are vital for livening up a grain-based diet. These items also don't ship well, which is why raising these products close to a city is economically sustainable now, and probably was in the Middle Ages as well. In any case, the settlement pattern we can see in the records is something like an agglomeration of nodes of settlement. Uh, sorry, let me say that again in English. Each neighborhood essentially had at least one mini downtown area that would be a focus of settlement. They were all connected up by the old road grid of the city, and between the nodes, agriculture did happen, but like I said, we shouldn't think of huge fields of rolling grain. Rather, we should probably think of intensive, market focused production behind walls or fenced off from the street. These were valuable commodities, after all. It's very clear that, at some level, most people in the city probably felt their first loyalty to these nodes of settlement. So how did the popes draw loyalties into a citywide and even regional identification? It may seem an odd question, but plenty of cities in the Middle Ages failed to maintain citywide loyalty, and those cities often collapsed into bloody periods of civil war. To begin explaining how the pope maintained loyalty, one neighborhood requires special attention: the Lorano, or the Lateran. I had always heard of the Lateran used in history books as a synonym for the papacy, and so I had always assumed it was in the Vatican, which shows my ignorance. The Lateran was and sort of is a palace complex in the south of Rome that had at one time been owned by the Laterani family, thus the name. The Laterani had the misfortune to side against Constantine the Great in his war to end the Tetrarchy and become the Great, and when he conquered Rome, he confiscated their stuff and gave it to the local bishop of Rome. Then he flew off into the Sun with Set, and it was strictly orthodox for the rest of his life. In any case, this senatorial palace had developed, by the early Middle Ages, into a complex of buildings in which the papal bureaucracy lived and worked. This included the Pope, who lived in the Lateran palace for most of the Middle Ages, And as such, the Pope's official seat, as a bishop, is actually the Lateran Basilica of St. John's, and not that other building dedicated to that Peter guy. What is particularly important to note about the geography of the Lateran is that it is on the exact opposite side of the old city from St. Peter's. The Lateran, with all the administration and the power that that entails, is on the southeastern corner, while the Leonine City, with the ideological and monetarily important pilgrimage sites, is on the northwestern corner. When you add in the plethora of large and medium-sized churches, small chapels and monastic institutions scattered in between, you can start to begin to understand how the Pope exerted his influence in a geographically spread-out way in the city. That said, the mere physical presence of a church does not automatically translate into loyalty to the Pope. Like... Just because the state of New Jersey had a DMV office in a mall near my house, that did not improve my loyalty to the state or materially increase my perception of law and order. Arguably, the work done by the trash collectors and sewer companies was more important to my day-to-day life, and the presence of the police, for good or ill, is the most direct expression of social order. So how did the Pope use these religious buildings to govern the city? Podcast footnote. I feel like I've said this before, but this disconnect between physical presence and lived interaction is called the ecological fallacy. One of the most pressing real-world examples is the classic example that a medical clinic may be very close to a poor neighborhood full of people of color, but they don't use it. Historically, many public health experts were confused by this kind of thing until some bright light actually asked the residents, what was going on, and they noted that they were separated from the clinic by an interstate, or the clinic was heavily patrolled by a hostile police force, or it was located in places like a high-end shopping district that made them feel welcome, or the clinic actually asked for money, it wasn't a free clinic, and none of them had insurance. I'm working on a project studying the importance of this issue in Rhode Island's COVID response, though sadly it has kind of been languishing on a back burner for the last six months due to my housing situation. Hopefully I can get back on track soon. In any case, end podcast footnote. There were a few major mechanisms by which the popes exercised power. The first, most direct, and most spectacular expression of papal power were the processions that were held several times in every liturgical cycle, which is to say, during major religious events, the popes would stage huge parades. Most of these parades went from the Lateran to St. Peter's, or vice versa, and stopped along the way at various titular churches to pray. I will come back to titular churches in a few minutes. Suffice it to say, they're important. In any case, because of the physical geography of the city, slight variations in these routes ensured that the Pope was able to visit most neighborhoods on these processions. The exceptions were visited in special processions to titular churches on special holidays, such that every neighborhood, no matter how remote, was sure to be visited by the Pope at least once per year. These processions were like modern parades, but in reverse in some ways. The Pope would ride on a chariot or cart, and his retainers in the clerical hierarchy would ride or march with him. The specific orders that accompanied him would vary by political climate and celebratory calendar, but most of the important clerical bureaucrats that I will be discussing in a few minutes were involved in these processions. In any case, the parade didn't include floats or any kind of moving spectacle, but it would be a participatory experience nonetheless. Each neighborhood, and usually the different professional organizations and several major aristocratic families, would pay for or else directly build temporary celebratory arches that they would set up along the parade route. The arches would display religious scenes or sumptuous artwork, and of course the different groups would compete to have the most elaborate or beautiful archway for the Pope to pass through. But let us not think that the people of Rome contributed to these festivities for mere civic pride and honor. That was there, of course. But the popes didn't just ride around during these processions. They also distributed giant bags of cash from their chariots. They would just throw out coins. These coins would apparently just be tossed out into the crowds during the procession. Huge sums of money were apparently distributed this way. Given that a single coin could be an absurd amount of money for the average person, common people could do really well out of this whole thing. Which, of course, means that there needed to be a system to ensure that the money went to the right people. Some money was probably just, like, handed out directly by the Pope to notable individuals and groups during his prayer stops. But there is also some indication of a pecking order in the crowd, whereby the close-in areas were occupied early by groups of monks or local toughs. Certainly, we can imagine that the city's urchins and widows could be easily relieved of their gold coins after they caught them. But none of this seems to have dimmed the public's enthusiasm for these events. Someone was still distributing free money. You might get lucky. Regardless of the specifics, these parades represented a fiscal and ideological tie directly between the Pope and a huge mass of the Roman public. Beyond the financial incentives, this was an example of the ruler showing himself to the public, something that was very powerful in the Middle Ages, particularly when the public figure was doing something seen as good in the process. In the grand human tradition of rulers and ruled giving and receiving gifts as a way to forge bonds of loyalty, these participatory experiences with the arches and the distribution of money made the Pope visible, projected an image of generosity and piety as well as grandeur, and allowed the public to participate in the whole experience. In the culture of the Middle Ages, this kind of imagery was very popular, and was seen as the kind of characteristics that made a person worthy of rule. If a modern politician went around handing out literal bags of money or flinging out prepaid debit cards into crowds, someone would have an aneurysm. Probably someone would get trampled to death. We tend to value efficiency and effective management in our leaders, and the suggestion that some of this money was going to local street gangs would be the end of the world. But these were different times. No one asked where the money came from, they were just happy to get it, and the flamboyant act of generosity made the Pope seem like a ruler that was just a cut above everyone else. This wasn't something you or I would do, so they must be better. So these processions were an important part of the pope's rule, but it would be pretty extraordinary if this was the sole basis of their power. A parade-based political economy would be one for the books. No, the real basis of the Pope's local control were all those churches, monasteries, and charitable sites spread over the city. Now, in an age where people were quite religious, local churches obviously had a lot of direct influence with members of the community. But we've also seen plenty of examples in our show where that social influence does not equate to physical power. So these churches had more going on than just talking at people during Mass. Conversely, just because the Pope was the head of an entire Catholic church didn't necessarily mean the priests at the local churches would go to bat for him politically. So, how were they tied to the Pope's authority, and how did these churches wield real influence in their neighborhoods? To start with, anyone who's read the Liber Pontificalis a little bit will know that the Popes gave the churches a lot of... stuff. That book is a constant refrain from the beginning to the end of the very lavish material patronage they supplied to local churches. Every little church in the city was provided with silver vessels, silk draperies, incense, candles, and cash. A whole list of luxury items and liquid assets that a church might need to maintain a certain kind of lifestyle. All this ensured their maintenance and was also celebrated as evidence of the Pope's piety. Beyond decoration, edible resources were an important aspect of papal patronage as well. From the time of Gregory the Great onward, the popes used their holdings around Italy to bring food into Rome, and then this food was supplied to essentially all of the classes of the city through church-owned charitable institutions. Some of this food went to purpose-built distribution centers, but some of it went to the local churches themselves, and then the local churches often had ownership of some of the distribution centers, so this was a major source of resources and patronage for these churches and they were resources that functionally drove the loyalty of all classes to their local church. In other words, the people in the neighborhoods were loyal to their local church because of the food they got from it, and the local church was in turn getting that food from the popes, and so the local churches were loyal to the popes. Most importantly, in terms of the functioning of the city, however, the popes provided these churches with allotments of land. Because the pope by this point didn't just rule Rome, he owned it in a very real and legally binding sense. I'm not entirely clear on the process by which this happened, but suffice it to say that by the time of the Carolingian Empire's fall, the popes held legal title for almost every scrap of land in and around Rome. As befits any feudal lord, the popes kept a domain for themselves and then distributed land titles out to the various churches in the city. According to Chris Wickham and his analysis of the historical records, the distribution was roughly in the pattern of thin wedges from the church location and out into the hinterlands which meant that each church got a share of the urban and rural properties. It was important, the urban properties were very valuable. These lands served two important functions. First, and most obviously, they provided income to supplement the resources given directly by the Pope. But that didn't seem to have been the main point of these properties. The majority of these properties were not actually directly managed by the churches. Instead, the churches leased them out to the city's aristocrats, usually under lease agreements that were not particularly remunerative. This seems strange to us, and requires some explanation. Now, Wickham spends a ridiculous amount of time elaborating on the structures of Roman lease agreements, and so I could probably spend another ten minutes, and it's kind of an interesting read if you want to get your hands on Wickham's book. For our purposes, suffice it to say that the majority of the church land was not held in agreements that provided all that much money. Rents were charged that were just sufficient to ensure that the property remained legally in the hands of the church. They were essentially token payments to maintain ownership. Some money was paid up front, which was more and could be useful for churches in a bit of a financial bind, but even this wasn't a particularly major source of revenue. Instead, it seems that what the churches were getting from these agreements were not monetary, but were in terms of political patronage. Because the local aristocrats got this land from the churches, and because the land was a major source of their wealth, the aristocrats and churches were entered into political alliances, which ensured that they had each other's backs, as it were, in legal disputes and in the local suppression of disorder. I'll talk more about the aristocracy next episode, but the thing to know for now is that these local churches supplied patronage in their neighborhoods that was effective to the poor and artisan classes in the form of resources and to the aristocracy in terms of land-based alliances. As such, these churches were major power centers in the city. Now, as local power centers, these churches could not just be left to their own devices. Rome had a fairly complex, if not Byzantine, administrative structure that had evolved over time to ensure that these churches were functioning properly and maintained social order. To understand this system, I must first point out that, of the churches in the city, some were founded very early. In some cases, they were founded before the coming of Constantine. These churches, called titular churches, I mentioned them before, see, I did come back to it, these titular churches had been small meeting places originally, but by our time period had become something like parish churches, and were the main liturgical infrastructure of the city. Uh, Eventually, over time, some of these would become full-on, like, cathedral-style buildings, real major centers. In any case, at this time, each church had two or three priests and it was these priests who belonged to the Presbyter of Rome, which is to say that they made up the voting body of clergy members in the papal elections of this time. Podcast footnote. Over time, other churches were founded, but any priest serving in those parishes had no voting rights. End podcast footnote. Now, of the two or three priests in the presbytery from each church, one was usually senior, and that priest often had extra duties. These could include liturgical or oversight duties in some of the newer churches, as well as a fair bit of admin. And basically by this time, they had begun to take on some of the duties normally performed by bishops, even though they were still technically priests in very specific parishes. But that created a problem, as priests and bishops were generally not allowed to leave their assigned areas. And these priests were. As such, according to many interpretations, though this is not entirely consensus, these priests were given the special designation of cardini, which means hinge in Latin, which indicating that they were allowed to move around, like a, like a hinge. And ultimately, this term cardinal came to mean that they were just more of a special kind of priest. Even with this structure of cardinal priests, presbyters, and other churches, there is a lot of admin to do in the churches of the city. And, not to put too fine a point of it, but the church was throwing a lot of resources at these churches, and he needed to keep on top of that. As such, the city was divided up into seven geographical regions. Each region had a small staff that grew larger over time. Notably, each region was overseen by a deacon, a subdeacon, a defensor, and a notary. Now, I have mentioned deacons a few times in the show, and a definition is needed now. A deacon is, in general, a kind of helper priest in training who doesn't have the full sacramental rites of a priest, but who has taken some level of clerical vows, and who is competent to take on some priestly duties, or at least assist the priest in services. In your local parish, the deacon may help with services and some admin behind the scenes. They may or may not ever become priests, in many cases they won't, but they're sort of on their way. These deacons that we are discussing, however, were a different kind of thing. They were the Pope's personal deacons, and they helped him, as Bishop of Rome, by administering these seven city regions. Initially they did this by ensuring that charitable resources were sent to the correct churches and properly administered to the poor, but over time they took on more and more duties overseeing these churches at all levels. Eventually, there was so much admin to do that the number of notaries assigned to assist each deacon multiplied, and an archdeacon was eventually appointed to oversee the other deacons. Given the level of power that they came to wield in the city, these men could actually sometimes be priests, but they didn't need to be. Their functions were more admin-related at this point. But as seven of the most powerful men in the city, they were definitely more special than your average deacon, and as such they became known as cardinal deacons, and were also allowed to vote in the presbytery, despite not necessarily being priests. Their chief, the archdeacon, helped run the city in the periods between papal elections. Which is a pretty high level of responsibility. I mentioned the word defensors a few minutes ago. This was a very unique title that dates back to before the rise of the church. Essentially, these were secular public advocates whose role in the empire was to investigate abuse of the poor by the powerful and correct those abuses. Once the church became a major part of the empire, these roles moved into the church's area of responsibility as part of the general trend toward the church taking on every non security related governmental function. And sometimes the security ones too. At the time we were looking at, there was a few dozen defensers across the city, and their role had become more amorphous and legal. Essentially they were still advocates but took on something of a role like public defenders, except mostly they worked in civil suits to help the poor, orphans, and widows in legal cases where they could be taken advantage of by the wealthy. The fact that such a position was being paid for by the pope helped connect the pope directly to the populace of the city and possibly just as importantly, gave the Pope a way to keep an eye on what the power players in the city were doing. The chief defensor was another of the chief administrators of the city and could vote in the presbytery. The defensers weren't the only clerical staff beside the deacons. In fact, the largest single group, we've already mentioned several times at this point, was the notaries. Again, these did not need to be clerics, and we have some records of out-and-out laymen acting as notaries though by the time we were looking at, the majority were at least on the path towards becoming deacons or priests, for reasons I will get to in a minute. The position of notary once again goes back to the empire, and as with modern notaries public, their role was to act as witnesses or judges in minor legal matters like signing documents. Of course, as society began to fall apart, notaries took on more importance, serving as judges in some legal disputes, but their role also broadened. In the papal administration, the position became something like an administrative catch-all. They were literate persons, agents of the administration, and as such had some decision-making authority, but most of their decisions were administrative. Send such and such amount of grain over there. They helped the deacons and defensers by overseeing logistical operations in the various regions. They kept records and generally tracked paperwork. Initially, all deacons had one notary, but their numbers multiplied over time, and they took on more and more administrative roles. In their character as creators and managers of paperwork, it only made sense that the chief notary became the first papal librarian. That role was ultimately split off, but the papal librarian and the chief notary were the other two individuals involved in running Rome between popes. I do love the idea of the chief librarian of a society having such importance. There's one last bit of clerical admin to discuss. Given what I said earlier about the hinterlands of the city, and given what I've said in earlier episodes about every village in Italy getting a bishop at some point, you hopefully won't be too shocked to learn that the Pope ruled as a secular leader over a number of bishops whose dioceses were in the immediate Roman hinterland. Usually a bishop was captain of their own diocese in this time in history, but for the bishops of Ostia, Albany, Palestina Porta, Silva Candida, Gabi, and Velatry. Their dependence on the Pope's power was such that they often just lived in Rome itself rather than in their parishes. They would, of course, head out to perform their duties, at least initially. But over time, the Popes found that having a bunch of high-ranking clerics around was pretty useful in terms of admin and filling holes at important cathedrals in the city. And so it was that these suburban bishops settled in as bishops who were de facto part of the papal administration and became known as cardinal bishops. This system of presbyters, the cardinal bishops, priests, notaries, defensers, librarians, and deacons was also, you will not be shocked to learn, the basis for the modern college of cardinals, and as such, the basis upon which modern papal elections are held. However, it was not a straight line or simple path from there to here. As we've discussed in earlier episodes, and as we will discuss in two episodes' time, the guidelines in church law about how elections of bishops were held was not really high on details. In effect, it said that the bishops should be elected by the clergy and the people of the city. The specifics of the election, how it worked, who got to vote, who oversaw the process, all that was not really specified, leaving the entire thing up for a whole lot of abuse. In Rome, we have seen that a system was evolving that defined who the clerical electors were, which is to say, the presbytery, but it explicitly excluded some clergy members without any kind of representation, while simultaneously being a fairly large group. And what about the vote of the people of Rome? Well, what about them? More about this soon. I tell you in so much excruciating detail about the whole papal administration, and it's not that you're going to need to remember anything about deacons or defensers going forward really, but I think it gives you a flavor of how a pope's administration in a city differed from that of a secular city. There was a very highly advanced administrative system going on, and that in itself is interesting. The other thing that's really important to say is that this whole administrative apparatus served as a sort of de facto cursus honorum in much the way that senators, if they wanted to make it in the world, they had to hold offices in a certain order. Now, there wasn't anything like that in papal administration, but if you wanted to become pope, you had to do your time in the administration. People didn't just get elected off the street or from some rural parish and become pope, at least not at this time. You had often started out as a notary when you were just literate and you could move on to becoming defensers or deacons, things like that. There wasn't a set path, but what we know is that all the popes in this time period had spent years and years in admin so that they were trained and experienced and had the church's best interests in mind. They knew how the system worked and they were loyal to that system. Today I started to cover how the papal administration and society of Rome functioned during the early Middle Ages. Economically, Rome was much like other cities of the time in that it's got its wealth by skimming off the countryside, though the specifics of how that happened at this time are a little illusory. Unlike other cities, Rome had an unusually large hinterland, and this supercharged economic growth in the city compared to its neighbors. There was a variety of proto-industrial activities going on in the city, though we will discuss these more next time. The mills are a good hint at the kinds of activities happening here. Much money was made simply based on providing the goods and services needed by the large population of the city, and this manifested in terms of things like leatherworking, ironworking, milling, and growing all those vegetables and chickens within the walls of the city. Of course, Rome was also extraordinary in that it contained one metric pope and a huge amount of liquid cash that came into the city in the pockets of all those pilgrims and messengers that came from across Christian Europe to visit the shrines in the Leonine city or speak with the pope himself in the Lateran Palace. That palace also contained the system of clerical administration, which was the gears and wheels of papal power. This administration was vitally important in holding together the ideological and political loyalty. Of the people of a city that was geographically quite large and honestly internally divided. Much more than the processions discussed earlier, this system saw to it that food and resources were provided for the poor, churches were stuffed full of silk drapes, and the aristocrats were kept flush with landed patronage. This all kept the city loyal. It did not, however, do some of the key things that we associate with a government. It did not judge criminal cases, it did not patrol to keep order, it did not recruit and lead armies. To understand those functions of city government, we need to look beyond the clerics and talk about the aristocracy. But as I anachronistically extend my arm and look at my wrist, I am reminded that we have already done a good episode's worth of content. I don't know why I thought I could get through this all in one episode, but alas. But this is a decent breaking point, so let's take this opportunity to wrap things up for now. The good news is that the next episode is already half written, so it should have a relatively quick turnaround. Hi, Andrew the editor here. So
1: Ben's lying to you right now, but in his defense he didn't know he was lying to you when he said that. I'm in grad school, and my thesis is due very soon, and I have to focus on writing that. So Ben can record the episodes whenever he wants, but they're not going to get published because I'm not going to be able to edit them. So just a heads up, don't hold your breath for a new episode until after I finish my MA thesis. My apologies, it's not Ben's fault this time.
2: It is the fault of someone who made the horrible mistake of going to grad school. In that episode, we will finish off our discussion of the papal administration of Rome by looking at the aristocracy of the city, their role in the military and the economy, their composition, and their role in administration. We will also try and find some time to look at the economy, uh, though we'll see how that goes. In any case, it's going to be fascinating, and so I hope you will come back for another episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. From the church location and out. Yes, Duncan, I know. Oh my God.